Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. Actually, 
reshapes and structures how you interpret So the church calendar begins on the first day of Advent. Today is the first day of the church calendar. And the church calendar is dominated by two primary focal points, Advent and Easter. The birth of Christ and the death and resurrection of Christ dominate the Christian calendar. And both of them, very interestingly, what you find is Advent leads up to the birth of Christ, then takes us into what's called Epiphany Tide, and then moves into Lent. Some people are familiar with Lent, where all those people only eat fish and walk around with a black mark on their head. Um, and, right? Yep. So you've got Lent that then eats into uh, Holy Week. Holy Week, you have uh, uh, week, sometimes you've heard of, maybe you've heard of Maudie, Thursday, maybe you've heard of Holy Friday, maybe you've, uh, maybe you've heard of um, Palm Sunday, maybe you've heard of different things, because they kind of made its way into our, our um, uh, sacred year, but not really. So that's midway through the year, and then it completes last Sunday, the church calendar completes, so last day, uh, last Sunday was the last Sunday of the year on the church calendar with Christ is King Sunday. So what it actually starts with is the people of God anticipating his kingdom coming. And then it concludes with the fact that he's Lord over everything. That's the idea. So the word Advent is derived from the Latin word Adventus, meaning the coming. It's actually, now this is interesting for those of you that might remember our study uh, when we in uh, Wrecking Revelation, uh, uh, excuse me, um, Wrecking Religion series, um, you might remember the word parousia. If you remember, the word rapture is never found in the Bible, but Paul does speak of a coming, an event of sorts. And the word, remember that passage we looked at in Thessalonians when it says, with a great shout um, that, that God is going to come and we'll meet him in the sky. We looked at what that that word means and how it was used. It was a word that in Greek culture was used to signify that when Caesar would come visit a town outside of Rome, that the entire town, it would have been a sign of disrespect to allow him to come into the town by himself. The entire town or village would actually go out, and this wasn't just for Caesar, with any dignitary, they would go out and meet them in the countryside and walk in with them. So when Paul talks about with the shout, we'll meet him in the sky, haven't you ever thought it was weird that we met him and then we went up to heaven and he came down to earth? Why is he coming and we're leaving? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It really is strange. Like, hey, Jesus, what's up? Like, we go past him, you know? He's going down, we're going up. It, that's not what it means. It's actually the opposite. And, and the word is, and I, I, whether you believe or not that there'll be some actual event where we'll shoot up into the sky and then come down with you once he's ascended, I don't really care. I think that's irrelevant. The language Paul was trying to give is the parousia is there will be a day where on this earth the kingdom of heaven will reign. That's, that's what it means. Ultimately, I, I view it this way, that 
that the way it's going to work is for 2,000 years, the church has been praying one thing. There's actually only two things that I've been able to find that every sect, every sect, that's a good sect, is that what it was? Uh, it, every sect of, of, of Christendom has done. There's only two things I can find that we all agree upon. The Eucharist, which is communion, and we pray the same prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Episcopalian. Uh, I, I found. I heard somebody really funny the other day. They were telling me they're like, "Yeah, there's this new, um, uh, there's this new uh, uh, um, uh, denomination I just heard about for the first time." I said, "Really?" And he said, "What is it?" And he and he goes, "I can't remember. It begins with a P." And I I said, "No, no, that's not it." He said, "P." And he said, "Episcopal." Episcopal, but whatever, yeah, it's fine. But, uh, you know, whether you're Episcopalian or whether you're Lutheran or whether you're Methodist or whether you are uh, a Presbyterian or whatever, we all agree on two things. We come before the table and we all have said for 2,000 years, let it be on earth as it is in heaven. And I believe that the way we're going to see that is we've been trying this for years. Father, let us move. Let us live in your daily bread. And I believe it this way, that heaven and earth are on parallels. And what actually is happening is throughout all of time, heaven and earth has been on a collision course. And eventually there will be a day where heaven will completely merge into earth. Revelation calls it when the new kingdom, new heavens and new earth come here. The new Jerusalem, the saints. But there's going to be that thing. That's what our Advent represents. You see, throughout the pr uh, preceding Jesus, while they were believing for the Messiah to come, the Advent was believing for Jesus. Guess what? We're believing for Jesus. We're just not believing for him in the manger yet, because we know he's been there and done that. But our Advent is that thing that says we're believing. The, the Latin word was actually the parousia. What it was saying was what Paul referenced where he's going to come and every time and every day and every prayer we say, Lord, come. Lord, come meet us in our messes. Don't let me wait until I get tuned up and to where I quit cussing and to where I quit smoking and to where I quit chewing and I quit drinking and then you can come. Nope. If I have a nickel Every time I've had a Christ or somebody tell me that they would start coming to church once they quit smoking, once they quit drinking, once they quit chewing, once they quit gambling, I don't know, whatever it might be. And the reality is he's just not interested in that. How much control do you think his cigarettes really have that that thing would prevent the love of God? Like, how much control do you think that your Mad Dog 2020 bottle really has? Seriously? Do you think that that brown paper bag just makes you say, well, I'll wait for you to throw that in. Then I'll show up. No, we cry out for the coming. 
So scholars believe that between the 3rd and 4th centuries in Spain, Advent season was first conceived. Um, And it was conceived as as this idea that they would really um, be, it was a way, it was actually initially a way that when somebody would get saved, they would say, this is how we honor him as we lead up to the birth, as we lead up to what Christmas represents. And so by the 6th century, Roman Christians would tie the advent to the coming of Christ. But by the coming, by this time in the 6th century, they all they really understood that the coming was not the first coming, but was actually heaven coming to earth. So the, the advent really never was, while we represent it in the calendar as having to do with a, a, a remembering of what Jesus did in coming in the manger, our advent has never really been about what happened in the manger. It's been the thought that what happened in the manger is going to happen again. He came, and he's going to come again. Meaning, Jesus came to change. That what N.T. Wright calls it the day the revolution began. Because from that day forward, everything changes. And now, God, it, it, keeping in mind, it never was that God wasn't with us. But Jesus came to demonstrate God with us because we didn't believe him. So that's what Advent means. It symbolizes the present situation of the church as God's people waiting for his kingdom to come, celebrating that he's with us, celebrating as we lead up to this, we celebrate that he is the light in the midst of darkness. The reality is what I love so much about Advent is it doesn't ignore the darkness. It doesn't ignore your pain. Some of Christendom that really irritates me is the Christendom that tells you to ignore your pain. God's just never been in the business of that. Believe me, when you look at it all throughout the scriptures, there is a wrestling with and a tension between the darkness and the light, the pain and the joy. There is that thing. So it's never been a mind over matter. Well, that mess in my life just really isn't there. No. It's been how do I find the joy in the cross that's set before me? How do I stand and recognize that he's with me and that I'm not alone and that he hasn't betrayed me? And in the midst of that, he walks with you through that mess. You do realize that when Peter was on the water with Jesus and Peter started to sink, it wasn't because he had lost faith in Jesus because he lost faith in himself. He had forgotten who Jesus said he was. So what caused the Advent is, is there, it's a remembering that there is messes and there is junk and there is whatever. I mean, we look around and there is that stuff, but God's walking with us through that. So one way that we look at Advent is the way the church celebrates this by making the ancient ex, uh, expectancy, excuse me, of the Messiah and by sharing in the long uh, preparation for the Savior's first coming and the faithful renewal for our desire for his second coming. Advent is for waiting. And if there's anything we hate, it's waiting. Yesterday, I was uh, we were sitting in a restaurant trying to find an opportunity to go have lunch with some some friends, and uh, we mentioned uh, Kumo's Corner. sitting there, 
apparently, uh, I know they have DoorDash, but now they have Eats to Go or another kind of thing. Where I'm sorry, Grubhub. It's like StubHub, but it's different. Grubhub. And so they have Grubhub, where you don't have to leave your home. Right? So you can – now, Dreamcatcher, I don't think, has this yet. Um, but um, but I would uh, – there, there you go. There's a new idea. Um, but what happens is you don't even have to leave our home. Why? Because I want to be able to not pause Netflix. Which, oh, by the way, what's happening on Netflix is they – you don't ha- want to have to wait for the next episode next week. So they give you the whole season. Right? So like House of Cards, you know, was the big one. They just uh, just dropped the last season. So the whole season gets downloaded, and then people actually binge watch an entire series in two days. Right? And so that's the society we live in. And because I don't want to pause the whole season that would be given to me in a moment, I can now on the, my smartphone order food to where I don't have to leave. We hate waiting. We're dominated by that. And Advent is a, an ancient embrace of the waiting. As we tell the story of redemption through the church calendar, we begin our telling of the sacred story not with doing, not with celebrating, but with waiting. We don't begin our calendar with celebrating on December 25th. We begin our calendar with waiting. Waiting for God to act. Yet for most of us, children of a high-tech, high-speed, instantaneous age, we're not very good at waiting. It feels too much like doing nothing. And most of us find our satisfaction, our affirmation, our sense of belonging in our doing. I talked about this a little earlier, but the reality is we're in the Western age, we're very good at human doings. The challenge to that is when you define yourself by your doing, a lack of doing, a mistake, if you fail in doing, you will begin to see your identity or your sense of self-worth by that mistake where you failed in doing. It's equally damning that we also find our sense of identity and belonging in our successes. And what I have learned is when you find your sense of affirmation and belonging in the praise and acceptance of others, you'll only be able to refuse through the praise and acceptance of others. So you've, you've got to figure out when who you are is, so, is solely found and made up and comprised by what others have to say good about you. Guess what you've got to keep making sure happens? You keep being successful. You keep doing well. You keep pleasing others. So you find your identity in that. And what the Bible actually says in the Old Testament is the book of Malachi gives this really, really interesting uh, uh, scripture. And and I don't have it in front of me. I'm just going to read it to you. But when we look at this verse of Malachi, or it, actually, for those of you who under, it's the uh, Chinese prophet Nathan, uh, 
But uh, in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, it's the last chapter of the Old Testament. So this is the last thing that the Bible says before Jesus. Keeping in mind, they have been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And what he says is, surely this day is coming. Don't you sense the tension in that? Surely this has got to be coming. I mean, at this point, they had spent, you know, 300 years in Egyptian captivity. They had spent 400 years in Babylonian captivity. They were uh, they had had the boot of every oppressor upon their neck. And they had all the while been saying there's going to be a there's going to be a redeemer. There's going to be a deliverer. There's going to be one who leads us out. There's going to be one who restores Israel. And Malachi starts the last book or the last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament. Surely it's coming. It will burn like a furnace. Now notice this. All the arrogant and wicked will become stubble because the day that's coming will be like a fire to them. But for you who love me and revere my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Can I suggest something to you? The way we translate that verse oftentimes sounds like God's going to send fire and he's going. Has anybody ever heard that fire and brimstone message where God's like going to send fire and he's going to like burn up the bad guy and then he's going to exalt the good guy? So haven't we ever thought about this? When Malachi's writing this, what he actually says is surely the day is coming and it's going to be like the light and fire of a furnace if you do wicked and hate love. For those of you who love me, it will be like the sun of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. Haven't you ever thought, what is the sun? <laughs> if you hate love, it's going to feel like a fire that burns. If you love love, it's going to be the rising with healing in his wings. Isn't it a wonderful thing how in the first days of spring, I love to go out early in the morning when the sun is coming up and be able to feel the sun on my face when it's first starting to get warm and you're coming into those great spring days. Love that. And that feeling for those that love love will feel like the sun of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. But if you reject it, if you turn your back to that sun, it will be like a fire. It's just that simple. It's not that God is trying to punish anybody because God never, ever, ever, ever punishes. Period. Ever. But if you reject his love. So Malachi says, those of you who experience that will go, and this is a really funny verse. I just included because I thought it's funny the way he said it. And you will go out frolic like the well-fed pig. That's one of the funny things. We have cattle uh, at, at the farm, uh, and so I get to go outside and see. Them. I always love it when they when they have calves. And in the springtime especially, they it's frolic is about the best word because it's so funny to watch them. They're so clumsy and all this stuff. And, but they're frolicking around. They're running around in the sun and uh, out in the spring. That's what it says you're going to do when the sun of righteousness rises upon you. Frolic. Then uh, I'm going to. Then will I act 
says the Lord God Almighty. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees I gave him. I will send the prophet Elijah before you in the great day of the Lord to come. He will turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. So this idea is the tension that uh, um, that you're really finding at the, the end of the Old Testament of Malachi. In Malachi's day, around 430 B.C., following the return of the Babylonian war messiah, it was a horrible time. They had been in captivity for years. They had been enslaved. They were hauled off from their homeland. So all of Israel was taken captive, or everybody that was well enough to walk was taken captive and driven into exile in Babylon. And the thing is you have to understand for an ancient Near Eastern Jewish person, the land of Israel represented God. The land was God. They didn't worship it, but it represented to them. That was the promised land that he gave them. So to be separated back from that land was to be in hell. It would have felt like living in the curse. And so they had just been through this incredible hundreds of years of this. And they're just now coming back. And what's happening at this point when he's prophesying is they're coming back and they're trying to rebuild the temple. And if you remember, every time they would rebuild the temple or start to rebuild part of the wall, people would come in and tear it down. It was horrible. They said literally they spent, um, I forget how many days, but like a year and a half trying to rebuild a certain spot in the wall because every night they would get it, part of it rebuilt, and every night the enemies would come and tear it down. Every day. They would get, start to get some cattle, start to get some crops, and they would come and burn out their fields or steal their animals. So it was a very, very, very difficult time. And what Malachi says in this, because there was a certain group of people who were also taking money from the Babylonians. So they were, there was an elite group of the Jewish people that were taking bribe money from the Babylonians to continue to be overlords for the rest of Israel. So what he was also dealing with, not that we have any greed issues in our country today, but he was dealing with power struggles where the weak got weaker and the powerful got more powerful by feeding off of the weakness of the poor. And what Malachi says is those people, if they don't repent from their arrogance, from their greed, from their pride, from that power-hungry thing, they will feel the sun that rises expire. But for those of us who are contrite, notice what he says, those of us who are weak, who are meek, who are poor, God will raise up and it will be like the sun of righteousness rising with healing in their wings. And can you imagine talking to a poor or sickly person and telling them, when God comes, you're going to be like a calf who goes and frolics in the sun. There's nothing more removed at that moment to them. They're just trying to live, let alone frolic in the sun. Have you ever had those moments where, like, if somebody came to you and was like, hey, tomorrow you're going to get to frolic in the sun, you're like, at this point, I'm just trying to breathe. That's what it, the promise is. That's the idea of what Advent is all about. It's that it's not just going to be something. It's going to be a complete turning upside down. Jesus, remember what they said in, in the book of Acts at the, um, at the upper room. This kingdom has turned the world upside down. What does that mean? The arrogant, the prideful, the greedy, the wicked, the manipulative. 
are put on the bottom. The first will be last. And the poor, the meek, the hungry, the humble will be first. This kingdom has been turned upside down. That's what Malachi actually promises. And so he's actually saying in this situation where the rich have used their wealth to oppress the poor and to gain more wealth, therefore transgressing the fidelity of God's law, he was very direct by boldly declaring that God was working beneath the surface. Remember the role of the prophets, and if you want to be someone who partners with God's kingdom, you've got to do this, is to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. It's our job to, in many ways, remind those who oppress the poor, those systems and those principalities and powers that are at work in the world, to remind them that the goal, God's goal of power is always to lift up, never to push down. Richard Rohr calls this the struggle between good power and bad power. You can always tell the definition of this because good power always comes underneath the powerless and lifts them. Bad power comes on top of the powerless and suppresses them. And if you look at our world, we live in a day and age where we attack immigrants and refugees and come to church on Sunday and worship them. Every answer is simple, but I am saying there is an issue when we make the poor our enemy. There's a church, Tosh and I were talking about, there's a church in the Netherlands right now. They've actually, so there's a law in the Netherlands that says that the government is not allowed to interrupt a religious service. So if there's something, a religious service happening, the government can't come in and disrupt that. There is um, a, a ch several children that are refugees that um, are, were at this church. The, the police came to arrest them, and the church decided to not stop the service. Right now, they've had 30 days of church because until they stop, they can't come get the kids. So what's happening is the local pastors, many of them that don't even have the same faith as this church, are taking turns every day a new pastor comes in and leads 24 hours worth of worship services. While this is happening, it's giving the opportunity for a lawyer to work to try to figure out legally what they can do so these kids can legally stay in there. Rather than being sent home to be sold into slavery, more than likely sex trafficking.
I'm not just talking about where we go and like lay everybody out. I'm talking where God actually not only deals with the oppressed, but actually also gives his love and light to the oppressor. I don't want to just see the slave free. I want to see the slave master healed. That's the way the kingdom is supposed to work. So it will cause those that attack the poor and the outcast to see the depravity of their hearts and act on behalf of the widow and the orphan and the poor, which is what the Bible calls true religion, where we lend what we have, the means we have to those that don't. That's the way this is supposed to work. So we're waiting for God to act, but I would suggest we're not so much waiting for God to act as we are us to become contemplative enough to discern what God is already doing. Because he's never not acting. We are learning to see that God is always acting because God is always loving. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are always inviting us into the house of love. But when we are consumed by anger, hurried by anxiety, or driven by impatience, we are blind and deaf to what God is actually doing all around us every day. When God broke into history decisively through the incarnation of Jesus, he discerned it. Not the Pharisees, whose religious movement was loudly predicting that God was about to act. The Pharisees were the ones that had been saying forever, God's about to do something, God's about to do something, God's about to do something. And because of the nature of how God did it, they didn't think he did it. Not the scribes and the priests, excuse me, whose professional expertise was in understanding the prophetic scripture. Not uh, any other people that were of the higher echelon, the basilicas, not the people that, that lived in the mansions. Instead, it was pagan stargazers and peasant shepherds who discerned what God was doing. Pagan stargazers and peasant shepherds. They were not experts and they were not reactionaries at the loud centers of religious noise. They were quiet people living silently on the edges of society. God always goes to the edges. If you ever can't find Jesus, just go to the edges and you'll find out that's where he is. So I'd like to say one more thing before we close. Waiting for God to act only seems like waiting for God to act. God is always acting because God is always birthing something new. Waiting for God to act is actually waiting on your soul to be quiet enough and contemplative enough to discern what he's doing. We want God to act from the center of imperial Rome. We want God to act through Washington, D.C. We want God to act through moral legislation. We want God to act through people coming into our churches. See, the way we want God to act is by they've got to come here and be like us. The way that God acts is when we go and feed them where they're at, not where we tell them if you come join us, you'll get to eat. The reality of it is we're waiting on God to act, and it's always going to be in the quiet corner of your living room before it's ever on the front page of the newspaper. So let me say this quite confidently. God is about to act. God is about to act in your life and in our world. But if you want to discern the actions of this God, you must learn first to wait in quiet before you become an activist, 
you must first become a contemplative. That's what Richard Rohr has to say. Before you become an activist, before you do anything, you better first learn to be a contemplative. The word a contemplative simply means, it's really simple, it's just somebody who knows how to do the hard work on you. Somebody who knows how to sit with God until he begins to make you well. Because you'll only be able to make others as well as you are. You'll only be able to make others as well as you are. Notice I didn't say as spiritual as you are. As well as you are. So what begins to happen is we then, if you're not a contemplative first, you become a reactionist. You respond and react to whatever is going on around you. You turn on the news, you get really ticked off and frustrated. I've done that thing before. And then react to it. What God is saying is, how do we listen for what he's doing? And most of that is not going to be on Fox News, CNN, or MSNBC. Most of it's going to be what he's saying to me specifically. So we have to first learn to gaze at the stars, learn to keep vigil in the fields, learn to sit with Jesus, learn to be quiet, learn to wait. And then and only then can we actually discern what God is doing. I'd like to say this uh, last thing as we begin. And the point... Um, so this in front of you, and you probably have something like this, this is actually an Advent wreath. So um, I'm not going to go through and talk about this morning what this Advent wreath is or what it represents. But there, there are four candles on the Advent wreath. Each candle represents a week of the leading up to or the waiting for Christmas. Okay? So each week we light a candle. fire certified. I remember you talked about this, so something happened. <laughs> um, so each week we light a candle and we recognize, and I'm not going to keep them burning while they're burning. I think those things are curious. Uh, but uh, we do this to recognize and celebrate that we're embracing what this waiting is all about. And I'd like to encourage and ask you to take part in a practice these four weeks going to be hard. The practice I would like to institute during this Advent is stillness, otherwise known as contemplation. Contemplation is just a fancy word that religious people came up with to mean praying without words. Just that simple, praying without words, stillness. And what you find in stillness is that the first thing that seems to come up is not the good stuff. What seems to come up first when you sit in silence is not the good stuff. What seems to come up first is not all the great things that God has said about you. What comes up first in silence is all the hurts, the rejection, the bitterness, and the pain necessary to work through for you to become more well. It is deeply important as a part of our prayer life, this is the waiting, the stillness. In fact, Thomas Merton actually said that the three things necessary for us to
to become um, a full human being, to embrace everything Jesus has, the three things Jesus shares, silence, solitude, and space. You're only as well as who you are sitting alone quietly in your room. And for the rest of the human mind, most of us are pretty well. <clears throat> Thomas Keating, uh, who's the father of the contemplative prayer movement in this country and West, uh, said, this type of contemplative prayer or prayer without words is also known as God's therapist. That's what he calls it, God's therapist. Because what I have found is that after years and years of following God and having an active prayer and devotional life, I was not able to really sit in silence and be well. I could pray for hours and hours. I could pray in English. I could pray the Bible. I could pray in, in the spirit. I could do all kinds of stuff and be well. I could have music going and me and Jesus spend three hours together. But I could not spend five minutes in silence and be well. What I would like to suggest to you is that you're only as spiritually strong as you are whole and well in that moment of space. So what I would like to suggest is in that situation, brain science has actually found that the undeveloped human mind, or the un, uh, if you've not worked on this practice for a little bit, for that, is only able to do two things. The human mind can only do two things. It can process the past endlessly and endlessly worry about the future. But it is incapable of being present in the now for more than 30 seconds without racing off to the future or the past. Your mind is only capable of endlessly, repetitively processing the past or endlessly, repetitively worrying about the future. But you can't sit and be now for more than 30 seconds in silence. This is because we have been given a process of shame for our past mistakes that cause us to reply and question, or replay, excuse me, and question every detail and process of fear of failure that cause us to worry about what's ahead. Let me say this a different way. So what actually happens is the way you're built is, and the way that the, the script we've been given says that when you sit in absolute quiet in a room by yourself and try to just be still, the shame script that you've been given forces you to replay what you've done in the past to beat yourself up about the mistakes that you've made and how you should have done it better. And the worry script causes you to look at the future and freak out about the anxieties of what might happen. So shame of the past and fear of the future dominate the way we think. I recently read a, a study on brain science that said 95% of our thoughts are repetitive and useless. 95% of human thoughts. 
was good at what I was good at. Because 95% of my style is probably about things that I've done in the past and worrying about I didn't do that well or feeling guilty or anxiety and fear about what's going to happen and if I'll be able to meet up with any standard that I think is in front of me of what people expect. So what this actually says is that in these moments, our mind quickly races from now, from this moment, to find something to think about, even if it's a godly thought. And it actually drives us from processing what God is trying to do at that moment. And they have found that our mind is naturally attracted to things like rejection and pain. Your rejection and pain in your mind actually stimulate the frontal lobe, which is the pleasure-giving or comforting area of your brain. You want to know why? Because in that, when you think about the people that hurt you, that rejected you, that did you wrong, it accesses things that comfort you because you're comparing yourself to them and thinking, I was right, they were wrong, they did me wrong, I'm better than them. Where actually sitting in the now, when they, they've studied, I'm not this smart, by the way, so I didn't come up with this. But when they actually put these things on and looked at people while they meditated, it accesses, if you can be present at that moment, it accesses um, uh, the amygdala, which is where your fight or flight instinct is. So guess why you don't want to sit quietly and be now? Because you want to get out. I got to think about something that I've done. I got to think about. So we get driven to comfort ourselves. The pleasure giving avenue wants to be met with. And what happens then is we start to develop a script about how this one did me wrong, this one did me wrong, this one did me wrong. And we then go through this whole thing and we start. Have you ever done this where you've come up with the fact that somebody is actually pissed at you and they're not? And you've got a whole scenario played out about how they saw you at the end of the aisle in Walmart and they ignored you and you said hi and then they didn't say hi back. And so then the next time you see them, now things are really awkward, only on your side of the equation because they have no idea that they are really having anything going on at all. So you act weird. So guess what happens then? You act weird. So then they think you're upset with them. 95% of our thought is given to them. So... What it actually is about is we have to learn to be here the way we are. So in this season of Advent, I would like to encourage everybody. I'd like to ask you, take five minutes a day with no music on. Don't pray, even in your mind. I don't want you to pray. That's hard. We're prayer people. Be still. And then when the stuff comes up, let it come up and invite him to be there. Invite him into that time. Because I promise you the first thing that will come up is pain. And invite him into that. That's our Advent. Is the waiting and then the invitation and expectation that he's going to visit and the sun of righteousness will rise and everything he does, he wants to give us. Father, we 
we thank you for this day. We thank you for what you're doing. And we thank you for this season. We thank you that we as a Western freely business people, we have the opportunity in this season of time, this space of time, to engage in something that's more ancient, more biblical, but deeply, deeply spiritual. And it's close to your heart. You're a God who waits. You're a God who demonstrates patience. You're a God who waits for us, knowing, knowing that we will make choices that will hurt ourselves. You stand there with us, and you ask us to allow you to climb inside of that messy messiness. God, help us to find ways to activate these places where we have been hurt, where we have been wronged, where we have people have lied about us and people have betrayed us and people have stolen from us and people have hurt us. Help us to find ways to stay in those moments and allow you to heal them and that we wouldn't rush off any mode or any process, anything as godly as that might seem, that those doings would stop defining us long enough that our being can be healed. Let it come deep within who we are. And Father, as Malachi says so prolifically, let it come with healing. Let the sun of righteousness rise over us with healing so that we that love you can run and frolic as the calf does when it leaves the pasture. Thank you for this. We love you very much in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.